0: Well, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts this morning in Acts chapter 24. And uh, we are going to do the entire chapter. And uh, don't worry, this one's short-ish. So uh, we are going to be in the, in the Pew Bible uh, with these longer and longer passages. Uh, I, <laughs> I told Janet, uh, let's just do the NIV. Um, because if we're going to keep printing the message, uh, we're just, we're just going to be using so much paper and, uh, you know, just, yeah. So we've got these wonderful Bibles right here that we can go ahead and use. So Acts chapter 24, uh, if you recall last week and kind of where we are at, uh, Paul has been transferred to Caesarea and, uh, he is now going to be face-to-face with this guy named Felix. And no, he's not a cat. Uh, He was a Roman uh, provincial governor type dude. So uh, we are going to pick it up here in Acts chapter 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. It's never good when religious dudes get together with a lawyer. Um, Yep, there's a lot of jokes that could be made on this day, uh, considering the state of things here in the state of Michigan, and lawyers and such. So, uh, we're going to move on. Uh, When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Oh, for the love of God, what a suck-up. Can't you, can't you just hear him? And can't you just imagine Paul sitting there thinking, Felix, you got a little brown stuff on your nose, buddy? Like, you know, I mean, goodness gracious. Just, sorry, it's just an obnoxious. Everywhere and every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before the Sanhedrin. "...unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today." Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, "...I will decide your case." He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, He left Paul in prison. This is God's word. So what is going on with Paul? Well, Paul's hanging out, chilling, uh, talking about Jesus with Felix and Drusilla, uh, all because Felix, you know, is looking for a bribe. He wants his palms greased. And Paul could have gotten, so so we learn that Paul really could have gotten out of this situation relatively quickly if he had just done what everybody else does, which is basically said, so, Felix, how much is it going to cost, pal? What is it going to take to get me out of here, right? And Felix probably would have said, this is the jingle that is required, and, you know, they would have they dropped off a little gold in a little Adidas bag and put it on Felix's front porch, and, you know, Paul would have, would have been free. But that's not who Paul is. That is not who Paul is. Paul, we learn, has a clear conscience before God. And it's interesting that here he is, he is standing trial. He is standing trial before the Sanhedrin. And that devolved into chaos because of Paul's, you know, kind of wiliness and craftiness, right? He was Strategic in what he said and how he spoke, and and was able to call out uh, the Sanhedrin in their own, in the midst of their own arguments and their own hypocrisies, and just kind of got them going. So he kinda, they forgot all about him, and now here he is in Caesarea, and he's and he's and he's on trial before this Roman governor, and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, bring uh, this lawyer Tertullus with them. Uh, the guy must have been pretty good, right? I mean, he was the choice of of the high priest. So Tertullus must have been the tops, the best. And he starts out doing what you should do when you're in the presence of a Roman governor, which is suck up, which is to, you know, wax poetic about how wonderful the Roman governor is. Because there, if there is one thing the Romans like, it is hearing how great they are. And let's be honest with ourselves: if there's one thing any politician likes, it's hearing about how great they are. And so this is how Tertullus starts. He's thinking, "I'm going to win this deal before you know anything else. Anything else happens, just by letting you know Felix know that I think." He hung the moon. And yet I'm pretty sure everybody in that room was sitting there going, Oh my gosh. Right? You could, even in the flat text, you can, you can read right through it. You can see through the baloney. It's just baloney. And, and he had to use it. He had to use it. Because he had nothing else. There was nothing else. There's no facts. There was nothing to support the charges. There is just a group of jealous, power-hungry people who want Paul gone. And that's really what it comes down to. That's what a lot of this story has come down to, isn't it? As we read back through, if you go back, why does Paul keep having problems with religious leaders? Because they're jealous. They're jealous. Paul is out there preaching grace preaching mercy, preaching love. And people are going, I want some of that. And so they're converting, and they're, they're following Christ, and they're no longer just blindly following the religious leaders doing whatever it is they tell them to do. And so that, that made them all so, so jealous. So jealous that they trump up false charges and are trying to get Paul crucified this is let's let's not mistake what's going on here this is the goal to crucify Paul to get him out of the way and again who's missing from the story the church where's James where are the guys where's the Jewish church why aren't they there they, they must have been so afraid that, that while the, the Jewish leaders were, were pressing out in jealousy, the church in Jerusalem was hiding out in fear. That has to be it. I, I, can't, I can't think of any other reason unless they too were jealous of what Paul was doing. And maybe they were. Maybe the early church, maybe that church in Jerusalem really was jealous of what Paul was doing because what Paul was doing was living a life of freedom. He was living this life where he was freely moving about the world, preaching the gospel of grace to anyone that would hear it in in a freedom of conscience that the, the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church, couldn't understand and couldn't embrace. Because they were still so beholden to the law and the rule of law that they had been following for generations. They hadn't seen how the Gospel frees you from the strictures of the law so that you can live a life of grace. Paul had gotten that. Paul had seen the freedom. Right? Paul writes to the church in Galatia for freedom Christ has set you free. And that's a weird thing to say, except when you start reading these stories, you start reading about the difference between the way Paul was going about doing ministry, the way Paul was going about following Christ, and the way that the Jerusalem church was following Christ. One was was still holding on to all the rules, all the laws, do this, don't do that. The other, the other was, was practicing freedom, a radical freedom where he says, for freedom Christ has set you free. That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female. Right? I mean, this, this whole thing. Paul says there is such great freedom in Christ. And the Jerusalem church couldn't get that. So maybe they were cowering in fear. Or maybe, maybe they too were jealous. But they were just jealous for a different reason. And so maybe they thought, yeah, let's just stay out of this one. Right? Let's just stay out of this one. But we have Paul who says, I keep my, I strive in verse 16. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, I don't know if you catch the little word at the beginning of that sentence. So, so I, therefore, as a result of, it's this conditional thing, as a result of this, as a result of what? What is is the reason that Paul is striving to keep a clear conscience before God and man? And it's this, um, that that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That there will be a a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I, therefore I, as a result, I, strive to keep a clear conscience before God and man. You see, Paul looks at the world, and Paul, Paul thinking about resurrection, not just as some theological idea, right? Right? But I think for us, as Americans, and American Christians in particular, sometimes we only think about the resurrection as this cool thing that happens on Easter. Where we get to, you know, eat some yummy chocolate. And it's a good excuse to bite the ears off chocolate bunnies. Or maybe have some peanut butter chocolate eggs or whatever, right? Like, it's a fun day. We get to, you know, wear hats and you know, wear pretty dresses and wear, you know, guys can get away with wearing pastel suits for for once in their lives. (laughs) Right? Whatever it is, Easter, we're like, yes, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And then we don't really think about the resurrection ever again. At least not how it plays out in our lives. It's just a theological reality. It's so often simply leveraged as an apologetic. Why do you follow Jesus? Because he rose again. How do you know he rose again? Well, let me tell you. Let me give you the arguments for why I think it's the most reasonable thing. There are books and books and books and books and books and books all written about why Jesus was resurrected and how how we can trust in that reality. It is it, the resurrection has almost just simply become this this apologetic thing. It's this idea that we hold on to and that we mimic and then we say, but well, we don't think about the reality of the resurrection and how it plays out in reality and in our lives. The guy who wrote the message, Eugene Peterson, wrote a whole book called Practicing Resurrection. It's a great book. And it's a great book because it calls us to the reality that the resurrection actually matters here and now. It actually matters in this life. The resurrection, the reality of the resurrection ought to shape everything we do and how we live here and now, in this world, in this moment, in this present. Not, not simply just hoping for the resurrection at the end of time or after we die and you go to a memorial and you're like, oh, yay, they're resurrected, they're with Jesus, doesn't that make you feel good? Yeah, that makes you feel good. Great, Woo! If that's all the resurrection was for, how sad and pathetic is that? No, the resurrection is a here and now reality that we are to live into. This is why Paul says, So I strive to keep a clear conscience before God and man because of the resurrection. Because the righteous and the wicked are going to be resurrected. Where do I want to find myself? Which which group of folks do I want to find myself in? The resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of the wicked? Which side? Which side of the aisle? Where do I want to show up? Because both are going to be resurrected. And I got to tell you, my hope, my hope is that I will be counted among the righteous. My hope for you is that you will be counted among the righteous. Paul says in Romans, you know, his most theological book, the book that you have these big, huge theological ideas in, this book that if I were stranded on a desert island for the rest of my life, if I could have the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews to study, I would, prob- I would be happy as could be. Because those two texts in the Bible, that's as good as it gets in my opinion. And I, you just can't plumb the depths of them. You can't get to the end. That's why, that's why people are still writing books on those two books. And they're going to keep writing books on those two books. There was, there, I, as far I think there are two new books on Romans from two of the leading theologians in the world that were just released in the last month. Because Romans is that big of a deal. And in Romans, what does Paul say? Paul says basically this. At the resurrection, our consciences are going to judge us. He says in Romans 2, their consciences will bear witness for and against. So what does Paul strive to do? He strives to keep a clear conscience. He strives to keep a clear conscience. And it it is because of the resurrection. The resurrection shades everything we do. Living every day knowing that you will be resurrected. Knowing, Knowing that you will be resurrected as righteous or wicked. One of the two. How are you living today? Do you live with integrity? Do you live every day with a clear conscience? Do you come to the end of the day and think, I feel good about how I lived today? Because that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, at the end of each day, what do you say about your own conscience? This is why throughout the history of the church, you had, you know, you had you had this, this constant wrestling early in the in the history of church was, you know, I don't want to die in sin. Have you heard that phrase before? I don't want to die in sin. I don't want to die with a mortal sin. I don't, I only kind of want to be practicing some venal sins and you know, not that bad of sins, but just, man, I don't want to do any real bad sins. Right? Because there was this idea of, ah resurrection's real, man. Where's my conscience at? Better go. I better get to confession. Better get to confession each night before I go to sleep because I want to make sure that's clear. I want to make sure the chamber's clear, man. Let's, let's keep it good. You see, and we look back at some of that stuff and think, they're so silly. They just didn't understand. They understand that Jesus for, fully forgave us. They didn't understand grace. You see, when we we, we, in Christ, right? We get grace. And grace wipes the whole slate clean, right? I mean, it's it's the Teflon. We're now Teflon. Sin no longer sticks to us. This 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 is what we're taught. And that's true. In Christ, we are perfectly forgiven. In Christ, all of our sins have been removed from us, for as far as the East is from the West. In Christ. We can have absolute certainty that we are going to spend our resurrections with Christ. Why? Because of the resurrection. The problem is for some of us that has now given us this place where we're like, I don't have to worry about my conscience. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm good, man. I can go sin all I want. I'm Teflon. I am Teflon. I can go out in the middle of you know in the middle of New York. And I can murder somebody, and I'll still go to heaven. Nah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. But is that how you really want to go through life? Do we want to go through life with a conscience that is weighted down, that is bearing down on us, that robs us of the joy of resurrection? You see, knowing that we are going to be resurrected, knowing that in Christ there is grace, knowing that in Christ we are, are going to spend eternity with, with, with God is wonderful. But if it doesn't shape and inform our reality today, then we are missing out on the joy of our salvation. This is why when you read the Psalms, you see things like, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Right? Because resurrection shapes it all. When you have a clear conscience... You go through your day a little lighter, don't you? You just kind of, things are a little better. That's why, you know, lying. Lying doesn't work well. Because you're always wondering where you're at in the context of the lie. Who do I, what do I need to say over here and what do I need to say over there? I mean, we've all been teenagers. We've all done the lying thing. We've all learned our lesson. Right? It never works out. The conscience weighs you down so we try to keep a clear conscience because of the resurrection and if our consciences are clear then we live life with joy here is paul standing before a governor of rome no fear no worry. notice paul doesn't suck up paul simply states a fact in his defense right you've been ruling things for a long time now let me make my defense he doesn't need to suck up. He, has no, he doesn't need to do a sales job because his conscience is clear. It's like, hey, justice will reign. My conscience is clear. Let's go. I know what I've done. I know how I've lived. I am free because my conscience is clear because I am living every single day in light of the reality of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and I know where I want to be and I want to live a life that is light, I want to live a life that is full of the sal- joy of my salvation. This is what happens when we yoke ourselves to Jesus, right? He says, hey, my yoke's easy and light. Come on, yoke up with me. Get in here with me. Put your arms around me. Because I, it's easy and light when you walk with me. How is that true? You know, so many times we use that idea of Jesus is with you as a judgy kind of thing, right? Right? Don't go sinning because Jesus is watching. How is that easy and light? That sounds terrible. That sounds like you got somebody staring over your shoulder just wagging their finger all the time. But the deal is, is, is when we live in light of this resurrection, we live in light of the reality of Christ with us, Christ in us. Then, and so we live that, so that our consciences are clear. And when our consciences are clear, it is a joyful, easy light life So my friends, how are you living? When you come to the end of your day, when you are laying in bed, is your conscience clear? Are you able to look at yourself in the mirror and say and say, "Yeah, I'm good. My conscience is clear." Or do you have things that are weighing on you to where your conscience isn't clear? Where you are like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that thing. Maybe I shouldn't have said that thing to that person in that way. Maybe I shouldn't have flipped off that person who cut me off on 23. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Right? I mean, not that anyone's done that. Not that anyone in this room has ever muttered under their breath, you know, about that rude person at the in the grocery store line, or about that football coach, or about that football program, or about that thing, or that deal. None of us have ever done any of those things. Where are our consciences? Are they clear? Are they good? Because we are called to live in light of the resurrection of Christ every single day in the here and now. It's not just some, some pie-in-the-sky hope for the future. The resurrection of Christ shapes our lives now, all the time, every moment of every day. And so we strive to keep our consciences clear so that we might live in light of the joy of our salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who live in light of the resurrection, who live in such a way that our consciences are clear, who live in such a way that that we might constantly, consistently, and continually know the joy of our salvation.